Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're talking about two of our favourite subjects, France and Italy. Where are they with COVID? Where are they with their politics? Where are they with Brexit? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. Joining me today is Chris Bickerton, expert in European politics, and Lucia Rubinelli, political theorist, but also she knows a lot about Italy. And Lucia, tell us where you are today. I am in Trieste, which is a very beautiful and decadent city on the border between Italy and Slovenia. And decadence is what we want. I say this every week. We never know where we are with Brexit. I mean, I presumably one day we'll know where we are, but um, I thought this week maybe we would be there. We're not. But how does it look from Italy? I mean, what is the feeling among the Italian public, among Italian politicians about the sort of dance between Johnson and von der Leyen? If I have to be honest, and I think that will be quite disappointing to the British public, I think that the Italian public debate is sort of fed up with Brexit. And there's not much debate about it going on, really, in the sense that I was looking, uh, before coming on the podcast, I was looking back at comments from political leaders about Brexit in, say, the last month or so. And the only one I could find is a very short comment made by Salvini in Parliament, where he basically says, oh, you all told us that leaving the European Union would be a disaster for the UK. But look at them. They are leaving the European Union and they are the first to have a vaccine. So basically, this is the only comment (laughs) an Italian political leader has made on Brexit. And of course, I mean, Salvini is still somehow playing with the idea that Brexit is a good idea for the UK and that leaving the EU wouldn't be a disaster for Italy. But it's not serious as probably it was or he pretended it to be a few years back. I think that now it's just some sort of provocation that he's dropping in the mix. Okay, let's come back to Salvini, because we always have to do our little Salvini slot. But the British newspapers imply that there is a kind of alliance of hawkish countries who want to you know, push a really hard bargain with the UK and potentially risk no deal, being led by France, we'll come to Chris and France in a second. But Italy is listed as one of the countries that's you know willing to line up behind Macron on fishing and other things. Is that at all plausible? I mean, I, I, I take it there's not a huge debate going on about um, fishing in the Italian parliament. No, exactly. But no, I think that's right in the sense that all the signals that have come out in the past few months about Brexit from, from government especially are all pointing to the fact that Italy won, is lining with, with France and with Macron when it comes to the Brexit negotiations, but is not trying to take a central stand in these negotiations. In other words, they let Macron do the job and they're basically following the lead. I do not think that Italy at this time is particularly interested in 
having an important role in the Brexit negotiations. The, the Italian government is, of course, heavily involved in the EU recovery fund negotiations, etc. And um, yes, so I, I think, yes, it, that, that is right. Italy is, is siding with France. So there is a sort of familiar ring to it, but I find it quite hard. I think generally it is quite hard to work out exactly what the, the sort of national positions are vis-a-vis the, the Brexit negotiations. Barnier goes back and he briefs the, the national ambassadors in Brussels and communicates to the member states that way. There's been this sort of spat, which we can sort of discuss, which really has focused on France, I think, exactly where Italy sort of positions itself. I don't know whether, you know, things will get to sort of a point where member states feel like they have to choose between German pressure for a compromise and French intransigence that would lead to no deal. I think if it's under those circumstances, it's not clear to me that, that Italy and the Italian government would necessarily back France. I wonder whether France would find itself somewhat out on a limb if it pushed for an unwillingness to have any flexibility that would then definitely lead to no deal. But I, I mean, the way the negotiations are structured is, is that you have this sort of technical negotiations between the UK and representatives of the, of the European Commission Maybe we're going to have now Johnson and von der Leyen, but all the, the life of the member states in the background and where they're positioning themselves, it's fairly sort of opaque. And sometimes you don't really get public pronouncements. And as Lucia said, the actual public debate on Brexit in Italy is sort of non-existent. So it's all really these kind of behind the scenes, national diplomats communicating to their governments and governments communicating to one another. And there it's fairly unpredictable as far as I can see about how things would line up. So, Chris, where do you think Macron is then? What if you had to characterise, and, and I agree with you, it's pretty fluid, and there's also a dance going on unquestionably. I mean, what, one of the complications here, I think, is that were they going to be striking a deal later this week, they would be behaving exactly as they are now. On the other hand, were they not going to be striking a deal later this week, then you know, genuinely this might currently be an expression of you know, real uncertainty on both sides. But the one person who at the moment seems to have a position is Macron. So what, what is he doing? Well, I was wondering about this. In some way, you can sort of weave into what he's been doing, a sort of narrative, I suppose, about the difficulties that he finds himself in. I don't think Macron is in sort of dramatic difficulties that something particularly has sort of pushed him to to make a big deal out of Brexit to try and reinforce his authority at home. But it's been a difficult sort of period for Macron, I suppose, from the sort of horrific murder of, of Samuel Paty and the response that he gave, which was, I think, a fairly strong one and fairly convincing one for many people. He's found himself sort of stuck in these battles around security laws and police and sort of police beatings and I mean, there are sort of a number of sort of accumulated difficulties. And out of the blue, I suppose, in a way, it seemed a bit, there was a sort of a, a kind of a, an effort to really strengthen the EU's position, focusing particularly on fishing. And you had some sort of public pronouncements. Jean Castex, the, the prime minister, went to a fishing sort of town, Boulogne-sur-Mer, and sort of had some very hard language about how we're not going to sell you sort of down the river. And it became very politicized in France. And I wondered sort of for a time whether maybe there was an effort to to make a big deal out of this, to try and detract from some of the other problems that Macron's been been facing. But that may be sort of overthinking it. I think just um, it's simply the case that uh, as you get kind of closer to the wire, there are particular issues that affect certain member states. 
the broad unity that we've had sort of up until now is now really sort of being tested on just a small number of key issues. And it may be that nothing really changes in that respect and member states still more or less manage to agree. But it may be that the different effects upon them of Brexit begin to show through. And on the one hand, you've had, I suppose, the, the Irish being most dramatically affected by no deal, leading to a desire to find some sort of deal with the UK. But then you have these outstanding issues. I think for France, the level playing field is really the serious one. And fishing sort of has a powerful symbolic element to it, which unites them, I think, with a couple of other countries along the sort of, you know, the Netherlands and Belgium. It just may be that um, ultimately it comes down to, you know, member states being willing to make compromises with one another for the sake of a deal or not. And I just find it hard to believe, honestly, I find it hard to believe that France would go out on a limb and scupper what looks like a deal. But on the other hand, it seems to me that the issues that are still outstanding are serious enough to, for there to be no agreement, not just on the French side, but more, more generally, and that France would have quite a bit of support in just saying, look, we just are not close enough. Lucio, is there any sense it, seen from Italy that Macron is positioning himself as a uh, the leader of a a vision of Europe is that is any of that coming does any of that come through outside of France I mean there's clearly a way of projecting this internally in France where French leadership matters but does it does it translate yes and no probably in the sense that of course this the, the kind of positioning that Macron is creating for himself does trickle into the Italian debate but I do not think that there's any serious commitment to that vision or I don't think it's it's taken too seriously, to be honest. I think that it, the, the vision of the EU that is still prevalent in Italy is that of a European Union fundamentally ruled by Germany, Germany being the most important player, especially for Italy. When Italian politics thinks about European politics, the confrontation is still very much between between our interests, Italian interests, and, and Germany. And of course, France can at times play a, a supporting role for Italy. And these are the occasions when Italy decides to follow France. But I do not think that Italy or Italian Europhiles are particularly committed to following Macron's project for the EU. So, so how do Italians then view von der Leyen? So we've, you know, there was a period where the head of the European Central Bank was an Italian. That's no longer true. The head of the European Central Bank is now French. The, the lead negotiator in the Brexit negotiations is French. Macron is obviously French. But as I said, von der Leyen, not just that she's German, but she's very close. She was very close. She was a government colleague of Angela Merkel. She was talked about as a possible one of the many people who over the years have been talked about as a possible successor to Angela Merkel. We still don't know who that's going to be. If this is Italy versus Germany, what's then the feeling about von der Leyen and, and the axis between her and Merkel? I think her election was relatively, well, her nomination was well received in Italy. Because although she, as you say, she's quite close to Merkel, I think she's sort of seen as being more inclined to at least listen to Italian requests. Well, of course, there was this incident uh, during the first wave of the pandemic when she said a few sentences that seemed to go quite against the mood in Italy. And especially this happened when Italy was the worst hit country and was struggling to find all the necessary equipment and the PPE and was asking for help and not receiving much. Von der Leyen had some, some 
uh, infelicitous uh, sentences and, and tweets. But then she, of course, immediately corrected it. And now she's, I think, putting a lot of effort into communicating effectively with Italy. Also her tweets, she often tweets in Italian when it has to do with Italy. So in, in a sense, I think she, if that was her aim, she succeeded in decoupling her own self-image from Merkel. And I think that plays out well in Italian politics. Okay, so let's park Brexit for a minute. Let's do the, the pandemic. So Lucia, you and I have talked, so we first talked when Italy had just locked down and, and the UK was heading that way, but we didn't know how bad it was going to be. And then we've talked at points over the summer where things, you know, in all European countries, things seem to be getting not back to normal, but the pandemic was under control. And in Italy currently, I mean, again, you know, it varies almost from week to week, but currently, and France was really suffering, and we'll come back to this in a bit, um, maybe three weeks ago, but it's pretty bad in Italy now, isn't it? And in a sense, just looking at the numbers, it's as bad as it was in the spring. What's the mood? Yes, it is pretty bad in Italy, even though... So it's, it's already a little better than it used to be a couple of weeks ago. The, the general mood is one of frustration. So, and, and this is very different from what happened in the first wave, right? So in the first wave, Italy was the first Western country to be hit by, by the virus, Conte was the first prime minister, the first government to decide to put the entire country into a lockdown. And I think that created a sense of pride in the action of the government and in the reaction of the population that accepted to be basically locked into their, their homes for two months. Then the summer came and during the summer, it was really a free for all. Life was back to normal in Italy, 100% normal. The only difference was that whenever you had to get into a shop, you'd have to wear a face mask. But that was the only limitation, basically. And then towards the end of the summer and in September, cases in Italy, as well as in most European countries, started to climb up again. But again, in Italy, there was a sort of, Italy was lagging behind. So we were a couple of weeks behind the UK and maybe three weeks behind France. And that was, again, a cause of some sort of pride, right? So the political discourse, the public discourse was that, oh, Italy was managing even the second wave better than other European countries. But then, of course, the, the peak came and we had more, case, more daily cases than we did during the first wave, as well as much more deaths per day than we did during the, first, during the first wave. So the mood suddenly turned into a very frustrated mood because there were a few, at least two, I think, reasons for frustration. So the first was frustration at the relationship between government and regions. The regions that run both the health service and schools and transport, so some, some key aspects uh, when it comes to managing the pandemic, in the first wave, they asked for more autonomy from the central government. In other words, they wanted to decide when to close down schools, when to reorganize transports and how to fund their, their own health system and what, what to do in terms of COVID hospitals, etc. So they asked for more autonomy. And the government in this second wave tried to give more autonomy to the regions. But the problem was that they could not agree on anything like between regions. And of course, some level of coordination was needed. So there was this back and forth between government and regions that then ended up in the government taking up the lead again against the will of the regions. And, but that, of course, resulted in a sort of endless dance of criticisms and decisions between gov central government and regions that really frustrated public opinion, I think. So this was one source of frustration. 
And the second was that, differently from other European countries, and precisely because of this tension between the central government and regions, some aspects of uh, social life had to go into a sort of more a stricter lockdown than in other countries. So, for example, Italy, I think it's one of the, I think it possibly is the only European country to have closed down high schools. So since starting with, I think, mid-October, all high schools had to be shut down because they could not guarantee the security, the level of security that was needed for the, the virus not to spread too much. And again, Italy is the only country to have done that. I think most other European countries have kept all school levels open. The same applies to some other aspects of, of life. So, and, and this, I think, caused a lot of frustration, the fact that the government had a lot of time to plan this, to plan how to deal with the second wave, but did not. And is there any sense, and we'll come on to France in a second, is there any sense, because today is the day the first vaccine in, in Britain is being um, administered, and it's being celebrated by the British government as a great you know, triumphant day, V-Day, I think they're calling it. I don't know where Italy is, where the vaccination programme is. But is again, you know, it's all relative, different nations looking at each other. There's a kind of feeling in Britain that on the vaccine, at least, though it's, you know, it's not in a sense our vaccine, you know, our regulators have somehow got ahead of the game. Is there any frustration in Italy that Italy may be lagging behind on that too? Yes, yes, there is. I mean, besides the, the comment that Salvini made a few days ago, there is a general sense that, yes, Italy is lagging behind, but it's less less so because of the regulation, which, as we know, the, like, the approval of the vaccine will have to, to be decided at EU level. The, there is a sense that the government, and especially the civil protection, which is the government agency that oversees all the programs of uh, vaccination when it comes to COVID, that this, this civil protection agency will not be able to deliver on, on the vaccines, basically. They, they are afraid that there won't be the infrastructure, that there will be a lot of organizational chaos when it comes to delivering the vaccine. So there's, there's a lot of skepticism that this will work smoothly as it should. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Chris, where, where is COVID politics in France? I mean, you talked about Macron's difficulty. So it did look really tough for France, I think it's about a month ago, and, and Macron went earlier than other countries in locking down again, and then came out of lockdown, relatively speaking, earlier than some other countries. Where is kind of COVID vaccine politics in France? There's, I suppose, lots of elements that are common to what Lucia was saying. I mean, the kind of common pattern, I think, is is the, the way things developed uh, in the sort of late summer, early autumn in France towards this second wave. And at, around that time, you did start to have some fraying around the consensus on these restrictive measures, what they call the confinement, along the lines that were sort of, you know, regional and sort of city-based. And you had some conflicts between the mayors of some big cities who complained about the measures that had been uh, imposed. 
in the south, Marseille was a sort of point of contention around the measures that were being imposed there. Um, one of the distinctive things about France, I think, which has been quite interesting, is that ever since really he was elected, but particularly in the context of the Yellow Vests protest, there was this sense of Macron as a, as a rather authoritarian figure and very willing to use the powers of the French state in an authoritarian manner to crack down on protest. Some of that was to do with the violence of the protest that he was facing, but then there was a sense in which he was opportunistically using some of that violence to expand police powers and state powers. And some of that has actually come into the sort of COVID politics, I think. There have been a lot of complaints about how any sort of protest or any sort of demonstration against the COVID-related restrictions are very difficult because of the powers that the French state has managed to have. There's a sense, if you kind of watch some of the sort of chat shows and kind of get a sense of the atmosphere, that there's a sort of permanent state of emergency that's been established in France, stretching really from the Yellow Vest era through COVID to today. And you're starting to get a pretty strong sort of conflict between security as a theme that Macron's pushing very hard and just civil liberties. And that that's just something that I actually Macron's struggling with. And so I think the politics around COVID have been shaped quite a lot by that. But by also sort of common concerns, I mean, if you think about what's going on in France at the moment, there is a lot of fear around Christmas, around the possibility that there's going to be a third lockdown provoked by the travel and the, the mixing that will take place over Christmas. There are discussions about how to roll out the vaccine. As Lucia was saying, in Italy and France, it's fairly similar. I don't think there are concerns about being able to manage it logistically, but there are certainly debates about the order in which people should go in and how to deal with the the IPAD, as they're called, the, the care homes. So these are sort of common debates. But the thing that I think really stands out for me is this sense in which the, the dissent around COVID has blurred into a broader debate in France about emphasizing security and boosting police powers, partly in the context of terrorism, versus the concerns that raises for civil liberties. And that's become, you know, if we look back at Macron's first sort of time in office, I've got a feeling that that'll be one of the common themes, sort of a long-running problem that Macron's, Macron's got. And so Macron is, I don't suppose you could say now he is yet campaigning for re-election, but he's close. And 2021 will be leading up to presidential elections the following year. If you had to look at him now, so if you if you sort of arrived from Mars and were just shown, this guy is the French president, this is what he's done, these are the positions that he's taken a stand on, as you said, he's really gone with the authoritarian powers of the French state over a number of issues. Would you look at him and say, this is clearly a centre-right politician now? Is there, is there anything left in Macron where you might say, oh, it's a bit confusing. Is this guy of, of the right? Is he of the left? What is he? Is he some kind of hybrid? Or is he now just clearly squatting on that centre-right ground? I think it's probably, yes, yeah, more so, I think, than you would have thought at the beginning. It's kind of clearer, I think, that that's his position. But he does find himself, I think, squeezed by sort of forces on the right and on the left and has to navigate positions between the two. On the sort of civil liberties issue, it's really sort of been pushed very hard by the left. And obviously the discourse around security that he's put an emphasis on is, is the terrain of the right. So he finds himself stuck between these two poles. I think he is thinking about 2022, inevitably. I don't, uh, there's certainly no doubt in my mind at the moment that the plan is to, is to run and the expectation is that he can run successfully. But one of the problems he's had is um, 
And this is a sort of something which is difficult not to notice with Macron. There's a sort of, there's an unexpectedly tone-deaf element to his politics. And my feeling is that it comes from the problem which Macron's going to have in 2022 is that what happens when you run without a party? So he has this majority in the National Assembly of his um, La République en Marche that is excessively compliant to his will and doesn't provide him the sort of challenge, I think, that you get from a, a fairly robust political party and its, and its leader. And so things have been signed off that, in retrospect, people wonder how on earth they got as far as they did because they were obvious mistakes and were likely to generate enormous amounts of, of protest. But nevertheless, they got through the National Assembly. One of them was obviously the thing that triggered off the, the Gilets Jaunes protest around fuel duty. But the most recent one has been this Article 24 in a, a law on security, which was about not being allowed to use films that you've taken of the police for anything that might harm them in any way. And you have to blur the sort of images of the policeman. And that's blown up in France. And it was signed off by the party without any real debate or any sort of challenge to Macron. And it's you know created huge political problems for him. And that, I think, is something which running into a sort of a, a major presidential campaign, the possibility of those sorts of blunders or those sorts of policy decisions that just turn out to be incredibly unpopular and you wonder how it wasn't predicted, that's something that I think Macron's gonna is gonna struggle with. But yes, I think that we are sort of entering into sort of pre campaign mode. Certainly next year there's gonna be a lot of thought to to twenty twenty two. And Lucia, where is the pressure currently most acute for the Italian government? So so we we've talked so much about Salvini and from what I've read, I mean his star is somewhat in decline. Someone we haven't talked about much is uh, Giorgia Meloni. Tell us a bit about her. Yeah, so Giorgia Meloni is really the um, one of the main figures that have come out of, of 2020 in Italian politics, I think. So she, she has been around for quite some time. She used to be, she comes from the ranks of Berlusconi's party, but then she split from it and she created this extreme right-wing party called Brothers of Italy. And for a long time, this party, you know, would only get maybe 5-6% of the votes. But then throughout 2020, she managed to rise up to 16%. So the latest poll from three days ago showed that she's at 16%, while Salvini has climbed down from the like 33-34 of last year to 24-25% a few days ago. So she's, of course, stealing, if you want, votes from Salvini and gaining ground against him. The general interpretation of this change is that she's from Rome. Basically, she's getting votes that would, that used to go to Salvini in the past few years, votes that were coming from the centre of Italy and a few votes from the south. And what, what she has managed to do is to take away those votes from Salvini and channel them through her own party. Now, she's, she's quite an interesting political figure because she defined herself as a right-wing Blairite. So, so she, she takes inspiration from Blair, but on the right. It's not very clear what she means by that, but that's how she defines herself. Do we know what Blair thinks about the fact that a far-right politician is claiming him as inspiration? No, no. I don't even know if he knows that she did. We need to ask him that question <laughs> at some point. So she, she, and, and the other interesting thing that I think sets her apart from Salvini is that she's sort. She, I, I wouldn't say she's a Europhile, but she's not a Eurosceptic either. She, so she doesn't she doesn't tap that line of Euroscepticism. She thinks that Europe is a sort of a provider of money, and we as, as long as we can milk Europe for money, we should do that. So that, that's a, that's a different approach from 
the kind of Salvini line about Europe. It, is she? So I, I really don't know. I'm, I'm I'm asking this just from what I've read in British newspapers. So she describes herself, you know, as a wife, a mother, and a Christian, mm-hmm. and quite a lot of her rhetoric is anti-LGBT, as I understand it. So it's got a kind of Orban quality to it. Some of this does that distinguish her from Salvini? I mean, does her relationship to what you might call traditional Christian values distinguish her from Salvini? I don't know. I, I mean, Salvini is also using that rhetoric, so I don't. I don't think there's there's much of a difference. But is she more there. plausible in using it? No, I don't think. I don't, no, I don't. I don't think she needs particularly right. So both her and Salvini have kids out. No, well, Salvini is divorced, and she had two kids outside of wedlock, if you want, which is it's perfectly normal to me. But I think if you if you want to present yourself as a as a Christian and as a Catholic, that's a no, no, right? You shouldn't you shouldn't do that. So I, no, I, I see a lot of hypocrisy in that, and I think it's it's quite easy to detect it. It's just that there's nobody else who's apart from her and Salvini, who's appealing to Christian and Catholic values as much as they do. And by the standards of hypocrisy, given that the architect of Orban's uh, a man and a woman is a marriage policy in Hungary was caught at an all-male sex party. Right. Um, and, you know, I think hypocrisy is, <laughs> the spectrum <laughs> is pretty broad. Uh, I want to ask you both this, because there is a tendency, I think, I mean, we Chris, you said that some of the pressure for Macron is coming from the left on the the security question. But of course, Macron will be absolutely conscious that when he runs for the presidency, he has also got to see off, whether in the first round or the second round, potentially a candidate of the far right. Where is the centre-left? Where is the centre-left on any of this, on Brexit, on COVID politics, on the, the recovery fund? Is there any signs of a recovery of the mainstream centre-left in either France or Italy? In respect to France, I still think it's trying to find itself and is not finding it easy at all. You have the voice of the sort of slightly harder left, uh, which is successful, I think, in mobilising around some of these issues, sort of anti-discrimination, anti-racism, police violence, civil liberties. So you get some figures like Jean-Luc Mélenchon who are heard, but they don't represent the the sort of the broad centre-left spectrum. In France, I think what you might see actually is the Greens, rather in the same way that you see it in Germany, the Greens beginning to sort of chip away at the SPD. I think you may find something similar happening in, in France, where the old sort of socialist party has uh, opened up a space by its retreat that is then being filled by the Green movement. That's one possibility in, in 2022, which may be a bit surprising, but uh, we can sort of see it happening already. Um, Sorry, does, think... does that mean, is it conceivable? Is I, I don't know who the person would be. Could there be a, a Green candidate for president who has a chance of getting to the second round? Surely not. Well, I mean, if you sort of think about it, um, if you imagine that the representative of the Socialist Party does as badly as they did back in 2017, then it all depends on where votes go. And if votes go to the harder left, then no, the left is kind of split as it sort of traditionally has been in France between the sort of hard left and the and the softer center left. And the numbers just don't add up for, for a presidential first round. But if the very large number of socialist voters, and there was a time when there would be very large people voting for a, a socialist party candidate, drift towards the Greens, then if you still have a very, very low score for the for the socialist party candidate, then yes, I think you could see some sort of coalescing around a new poll, if you like, which would be a, a Green 
candidate. I think I don't find that impossible. I mean, it depends on who that is and whether they get momentum and whether whether it really gets going in the next couple of years. But I, I, I mean, it's not something that's unique to France. I think there's a kind of drift um, in other places as well. So that's what makes me think it may, you know, it may be worth considering. Where is the centre-left in Italy, Lucia? Anywhere? No, nowhere to be seen. No, it's... Um, <laughs> well, the, the, the Democratic Party, the PD, is, uh, of course, one of the three partners in, in the in government, uh, in the coalition. But And they did gain a bit, a few points over, over in 2020, which I guess is a good sign. But the fact is that the party is not even trying to project an image of being centre-left. Um, they are basically... So when it comes to the relationship between Italy and the EU, they're always uh, siding with the EU. So one of the interesting themes that are debated at the moment in Italy, and that might be actually also quite dangerous for the government, is whether or not Italy should accept the the European stability mechanism and use it to fund um, healthcare expenses. And the Democratic Party, is basically, together with Renzi's party, is basically the only party in government that is in favor of using those monies. Of course, the five star are completely against using the European stability mechanism. So the, the, the PD doesn't have a clear left wing line, I think. And yet the, the problem is that differently, for, for example, from France or possibly even Germany, is that there's no party further on the left, right? So what you have is the five star movement, which is not clearly further on the left. I mean, some Parts of the part of the movement are further on the left, but there are also other parts that are further on the right. So there's no, there are no new figures among the centre left that are coming that are coming out of the pandemic or of 2020. What you have is some parts of the Five Star Movement and the, the, the Democratic Party still doing what it always does, which is just not clear. Okay, I'm going to ask a last question, a completely sort of general, not particularly analytical question, but we're coming to the end of 2020. 2020 has been a very extraordinary year. Um, we're, we're also coming to the end of the Trump era. So we're also coming to the end of a one version of the four-year cycle that included Brexit and included a lot of turmoil in European politics too. As people look ahead to 2021 in Italy, in France, politicians, the public, is there any feeling, do you think, that something more like normal or familiar politics or, or a sense of optimism that some of the worst of the upheavals of the last few years may be going to recede? Or do you think there's still this mood? So, you know, a Biden era, Brexit is sorted, the, the vaccines come, the European Recovery Fund does its work. Merkel is eventually replaced by someone and so there's a kind of jockeying, a familiar jockeying for supremacy in European politics. Is there any feeling that 2021 might be a year where European politics feels more familiar? Or do you think that sense that we're in, as Helen might say, completely inappropriately in this context, that we're not in Kansas anymore, that there is something new in European politics that that feeling is still really strong? Uh, Well, I would say from the French perspective, but also from the broader European perspective, I don't really think there's this sense of a return to, to normality. I think people often sort of look to kind of Biden with this kind of longing for a return to something like, I don't know, the sort of the 1990s or something. It's just not, I think, the case that the issues are too pressing and there are too many of them. I think in France, it's kind of it's very clear. I mean, Macron won in 2017 because Fillon was accused of corruption at a crucial moment and was forced to stand down. And he was able to present himself as somebody who would break the hold that traditional parties have on the French system. That 
simply won't work in 2022. And it makes it very, very unclear, I think, what the, the, the results might be in that presidential election and how exactly it would play out. And there's a sort of lurking sense of foreboding about something unexpected happening, I think. Uh, and that, you know, is going to be the case in 2021. And at the European level, I think, um, you know, you get the end of the Merkel era with this sense of her not really having achieved a number of things that she wanted to achieve, particularly the the fiscal sort of capacity associated with the next generation EU fund hanging in the balance. A deal may be done with Hungary and Poland, it may not. But even if a deal is done, I think the the consequences and the sort of the, the echoes of the divisions will last for quite a long time. So I don't think there is really a sense of a return to normality at all. I think there's an expectation that we're in an era where things are difficult, things are challenging and unexpected things happen and that will continue. And the only sort of comforting element, which I think is the case for everybody, is the hopes invested in a, in a vaccine that may mean that some of the restrictions are lifted. But from a specifically political angle, I think French politics and pan-European politics have this combustible element to them. And if the hopes are invested in the vaccine, that in a way it symbolises the extent to which the rescue comes from outside of politics. It doesn't come from within politics. Lucia, any any feeling that 2021 for Italy is going to be the beginning of a more stable era? Uh, no, I think I agree with everything that Chris has said. I think there are two differences in Italy or two other elements to consider in Italy, or at least, yeah, and I think both are somehow elements for optimism. One is that the threat of Salvini seems to be receding. Of course, Salvini plus Meloni have 40% of the votes, so the, the two together are still quite um, dangerous. But I think there is a sense that the governing coalition did do relatively well and could keep on doing well until the, the natural end of the, their term in office. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, I think there is a growing sense of optimism because of all the money that will flow into Italy because of the recovery fund. Although there's a lot of skepticism about how this money will be managed and the amount of corruption that will come into managing that money, I think there, there is also a sense in which finally Italy can think of itself as no longer the austerity country, the country that needs to cut its spending, but on, on the contrary can have some money to, to invest and to spend. So those were your two grounds of optimism, but you said you started no, but, by implying, but it wasn't enough, right? No. It's not a return to... No, I don't think there's any sense We're of still in uncharted territory. Yes, yes, very much so, I think, yeah. I think we can be reasonably confident that by next week we will know the shape of a Brexit deal or no deal. And Helen Thompson and Chris Brooke will be with me to talk about the implications of that and everything else that's happened in 2020 for British politics. This is a last call for anyone who wants to get some of our exciting merchandise in time for Christmas. If you go to talkingpoliticspodcast.com, you can find out what we have and how to buy it. We'll also tell you next week about our plans for Christmas and what we've got coming up in the new year. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Okay. Lucia has turned into. Ah. Okay, here she is. Wait, <laughs> not sure I am here. <laughs> you are there, but there's a. Is it an actual duvet? Yes. Okay. Not working? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. You sound like, yeah, you've got a duvet. Okay. Do you want to just give me one more sentence, Lucia? Describe um, your duvet. <laughs>
It's, it's not particularly nice. Um, and my mother-in-law said that they should use another one. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.